Good morning, everybody. That was a mouthful right there, the 12 days of Christmas announcements, I think, or something, whatever that was. Hey, it's really good to be here with you today. We're in a series called Unwrapped, and the whole basis behind this series is basically we're going to take various Christmas traditions and unwrap them for you. We're going to take a look at what they are, where they came from, and what they mean. And so you may have noticed on the bulletin you receive, if you grabbed them when you walked in the door, if you have the app open today, you may notice that today's tradition is Santa Claus. You don't have to worry. The church didn't suddenly become a heretical church teaching Santa instead of Jesus. We did add him to our stage, though. Welcome. Glad you're here today. Mr. Claus, I think there's one over there. I like that one better. The big blow-up ones are kind of my favorite, but just want to warn all parents real quick. You've got about 15 minutes to decide what you're going to do. <laughs> Enough said, all right? So seriously, if you're a parent with a child in the room and you thought, wow, I uh, didn't want this to be that day we have that conversation. I, uh, we have some people in the hallway. Uh, you can find them. They're usually wearing a little thing. They'd be happy to help you connect your kids into our fantastic ministries for kids, whether it's preschool or, or, or even elementary age. Um, feel free to do that. Um, please don't wait till they're 16 like me. I'm just kidding. So... Real quick, I'm going to have you help me this morning. Tell me, your, you don't tell me, tell the person next to you, if you are by yourself, we welcome you to Kingsway. This is not a good time to be by yourself. So look around. If you see someone sitting alone, reach out to them. Bring them into your group for this conversation. I'm giving you two minutes, two minutes to tell your favorite Christmas story of all time. And if you're a parent with a child in the room and you want to protect your child from this conversation today, I want to ask you to go ahead at this time to go ahead and get up and go. Okay. Tell your favorite Christmas story on three. One, two, three, go. Let them tell a story now, Mr. and Mrs. Chatty Chat. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up. Put the final touches on your story. I have two Christmas stories that rank up there among my favorites. One is personal, one is someone else's. I probably have more, but these are probably if I have to pick them. Here they are. The first one is this. So the way the story went, and I think I've told parts of this before. I don't remember the exact uh, year it was, but I was a young boy, uh, young enough to have no clue what was going on. And so getting the details of the story after the fact. But I remember this. In my family, we had just bought a camera. You remember those cameras, the, the ones that you rest on your shoulder made you feel like you were a movie director? Remember this back in the day? They're not like cameras today, you know, a cell phone or something like that. And this is like a camera, you know, and it didn't hold much on it. And that we had one of those. I remember that's part of the story because somewhere, somewhere in the midst of all these old VHS that you can't watch anymore unless you pay somebody to transfer them over, there's, a, there's footage of this moment. And so, here's what happened. My mom wanted a new coat for Christmas. She had actually gone so far as to go to the store and pick out the coat so that my dad wouldn't mess it up. 
Some of the ladies in the room are laughing because they know what this is like. My understanding of the story is she might have actually even been there when he bought the coat. Now, my mom was notorious in our family for unwrapping Christmas presents, looking at what they were, and then rewrapping them. And this was easy to do because my dad is the world's worst rapper, and the apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree, let me just say. So I couldn't get away with this in my family because my wife is so meticulous when it comes to rapping, it's like, I'll never know. So my mom always knew her presence beforehand. It's all this part of the story. So it's Christmas morning. My mom was a nurse. She worked at a local emergency room, so she always had to work on Christmas morning unless they called her off, which happened about half the time. So we got up early, like 4, 4.30, 5 a.m. My mom was a champ like many of you wives are. This is a great time. Husbands would reach over and say, thank you for being a great mom to our kids, a wife to me. She'd get up. She'd make us all breakfast, and we'd open all these presents, and it would be great. You know, you'd be great groggy, but you'd push through the grogginess, and there's just the joy and the celebration. And the last present was my mom's coat. Everybody's gathered together, my mom, my dad, me, my sister. And, oh, there's one more present. It's a big box. My mom's hamming it up. Oh, I wonder what's in this box. And she knows. She unwraps it. She opens the box. She's playing along. And, again, I'm just a kid. I I don't understand what's happening. And then she pulls out the coat. And it's not the coat. (laughs) And she's looking at the back of it. And her literally, her expression goes from joy, fake joy, to what is this? (laughs) Almost incredulous. And she literally says out loud, what is this? This is not the coat that I asked for. And she turns it around. And it's not just the wrong coat. It's her coat. My dad rewrapped her coat. (laughs) And my dad at this point is on the couch, belly laughing. (laughs) Because my mom, who opens everything and knows everything and picked out the coat and made sure he got the right coat, didn't even get that it was her old coat. (laughs) And then when it dawns on her what happened, she immediately becomes almost angry, a little bit surprised, a little bit embarrassed, you can imagine. Like, what in the world? Where's the coat? Where's my real present? And then he went and got it out of the closet, and it's forever been a story of ours to tell. Now, you can imagine why I pull pranks on my family all the time. It's not my fault. (laughs) So that's one of my favorite Christmas stories of all time. But here's another one. Uh, In the summer of 1998, I was mentored by a family called the O'Shea's. They they were at this church that I did my internship at, and I lived with them for the summer. Just a fantastic family. The husband in the family had had a tumor uh, at some point before I met them, and they had to do surgery, remove part of it. But because of that, he walked with a limp. He had slurred speech. His mental processing, it was amazing the things he could process, and then it was also amazing the things he couldn't remember and that weren't there. But I learned so much about love from this family. Now, it was summer, and just as I would sit there on meals and ask them questions about life and marriage and all these kinds of things, I remember this day that she, the wife, just a fantastic godly woman, told me this story about the best Christmas they ever had. And how at that particular Christmas, they were going through all the things with their husband, and so money was extremely tight. They didn't have the resources because they were investing it all in the various research and surgeries and things uh, that would come along with this tumor. And um, in the midst of this, I remember her telling me, we had our best Christmas ever that year. And I said, why? She said, we didn't have any money for extras. I remember I literally bought him a razor because that's what he needed and that's all we could afford, a razor. 
But she said it was the best Christmas we ever had because we stripped away all of the hoopla and gifts and other stuff and just got down to family being together. And here we were, this critical, tough moment going on in the life of the family, and they rallied together around each other in love. And that was, that's my, ah. Oh. Hey, honey, let's not buy our kids presents anymore. And, you know, but in all reality, Christmas is great because we get together with family. We celebrate Christmas. And let's be honest, isn't it a lot of fun to go out and go shopping? Some of you are like, no. <laughs> What's your idea of fun? <laughs> I really enjoy it. My wife does most of it, but I enjoy the work that she does. I enjoy seeing the <laughs> smiles on my kids' faces. I enjoy the fun of the gathering. It's stressful. It's tiring. It's all those things. But you know what? I love seeing the lights up and the tree up. I just, I love it. There's something special about it. But it brings up a great question. Where did this whole thing come from? The tree and the lights and the presents and the Santa Claus and the whole nine yards. And we're not going to get into all that today. We'll talk a little bit more over the next coming weeks about trees and lights and those kinds of things. But let's just talk for a minute about this little guy here and the things beside him, those presents. Before we get to that, I want to show you where I believe the story first began in the Bible. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 1. It'll be on the screen if you don't know how to find it. If you have our app open, it's actually in there. But um, if you don't have an app or a phone that can download the app, you can download it right now. <coughs> Just go to your app store, <coughs> search the Kingsway Church app, and you'll find us there. <coughs> Excuse me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. Now, these are relevant things being in the text. I want to point them out as we go. Messiah is the term that was used for the coming one, the anointed one, who's been foretold for hundreds, even thousands of years. The Messiah is going to come. But Messiah meant something. To them, see, we know something now about Jesus they didn't know then. The Messiah was going to be the king, the king who was going to free Israel from all these oppressors. And if you know Jewish history, starting hundreds of years before Jesus with Babylon and being passed down to Persia and being passed down to Greece and then passed down to Rome, there were these kingdom after kingdom after kingdom who had come and conquered the Israelites and they were in constantly in captivity. And they were waiting for the Messiah who would come and free them from captivity. But what they didn't understand was the captivity Jesus came to free them from was not the one of oppressive leadership and government. <clears throat> it was the one from Satan's sin and death. That becomes clear in the text. But that's what they would have heard Messiah and thought, king. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. A better word there, as I told you last week, is not really engaged, it's betrothed. They're committed in marriage. They're committed in marriage in such a way that it's as, as if they're married. See, like today, engagement's like practice marriage. That's not how it was back then. It is actual marriage. You just haven't gone through the ceremony yet. But before marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, this is important because they would not have engaged in any intimate activity prior to the wedding. She became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I realize if you're visiting with us today, you've heard this story. You go, do they really believe that a virgin was made pregnant? Is that, I mean, come on. Do Christians really believe that? And the simple answer is yes. And I get it. It's a, it's a miracle. And it's not explainable. And I can't scientifically explain it to you. And though those have tried, I think they're doing a disservice to the text. It's just a simple fact that at moments in time, God intersects with reality in a way that is miraculous. And by definition, a miracle means it's not normal. 
If miracles happen literally every moment, all the time, every time, then they're not miraculous. That's just life. And this is a miracle that's about to take place. This is huge. Verse 19, Joseph, that's the fiance, he was a good man. And he did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. So you can imagine how the story unfolds. Mary comes to Joseph, says, I'm pregnant. How did that happen? It was a miracle. An angel came to me, and, and this is what happened. And he's like, yeah. See, in that culture, Joseph had the right. He had the right to literally bring her out and shame her in front of the community. As I told you last week, Nazareth, where they lived in, in the town of Galilee, just a little area, Galilee's area, uh, Nazareth is like a little city or town, I don't know what you want to call it, very small, very small, hundreds probably of people, probably not even into the thousands. He could have literally brought her out and shamed her by divorcing her, or divorcing her and then they would have been, she would have been untouchable. He was just going to do it quietly so that maybe she could move on and have a quiet life, but he wasn't going to take part in this. And then this happens. Verse 20, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, that's huge. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son and you were to name him Jesus. And I'll just stop there for a minute. There's so many biblical things happening in this text just to hang on to them and kind of make a point out of them. Joseph is called the son of David. Why? Because if you were to trace his ancestry back, 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 way back, back. And Matthew does this earlier in the book in chapter 1. If you were to go all the way back, you find that his ancient great, 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 whatever it is, grandfather, I didn't count the greats, is David. And this is important because we are told back in Samuel, I believe it's 2 Samuel 7, I didn't look this up, but I believe that's where it is, that God comes to David and says, one day your descendant is going to have a throne and he's going to reign and his kingdom will never end. It'll be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So the angel is showing up and he's saying, hey, Joseph, Joseph, you know, son of David, he's giving him confidence. Something amazing is about to happen in you. This woman you're about to marry, you need to stay with her because she's telling you the truth. The story is legitimate. She is pregnant, and it is a miracle, and it is from God. I can only imagine what went through Joseph's mind. Joseph may be thinking, hey, is there a, like a book I can read on how to be the dad of Messiah? I don't know how that goes. I remember when, uh, when we first got Matthias, my first son, my oldest son, six years old. Uh, he was, he, we adopted him from Taiwan, and he was four months old the day we got there. I mean, literally, we flew from Denver. That's where we lived in Colorado. We flew to L.A. and from L.A. to Taipei. And uh, when we got into Taipei, we took like a, an hour and 45-minute or so car ride with some people we've never met to an orphanage out in the villages of Taiwan. And we're out kind of in the sticks, but you can't see anything. It's just black. It's not like well-lit like you would think of here in our community. So you get out there and you really can't see anything. And they say, look, all the kids are asleep. You're going to have to wait till tomorrow. And I'm sorry, I was not okay with that answer. It's like, it's been four months. I've been looking at pictures and praying for this little boy. Can I at least see him? Like, no, you can't. Why? Because if you wake him up, you got to take him. I'm like, I'm okay with that. They're like, no, you don't understand. Matthias doesn't sleep well. I'm like, that would have been good news to know four months ago. But <laughs> I'm like, can we just look at him? Like, you can look at him, but you got to be quiet. You can't make any noises and you can't hold him. And I remember walking into the, the, the home, and uh, there he was. He was asleep in a car seat because they could rock the car seat, and that helped him feel peaceful. And I remember looking at him, and 
I just, I, I don't know, these emotions came over me I didn't know what to do with. I remember looking at this little guy, and, and, and here are the two emotions that I, if I could put them, words on them. The first one was awe. Like, man, I've waited so long to be a daddy at God's answer my prayers. You know what the second one was? Fear. <laughs> Fear of the responsibility. It was such a dream, unreal moment up until then. And I remember looking at him thinking, oh, man, I don't think I've read enough. I don't think I'm ready enough for this moment. Can you imagine Joseph? <laughs> Angel Lord comes to you, hey, you're, you know, son of David. Like, hey, you're building me up for something here, aren't you? Yeah, you're going to be the dad of Messiah. The what of who? There's no training on this. There's no one-on-one. Nobody's gone before you. But there's a statement of faith in that. And this isn't the point of today's message, but this is uh, uh, something that God has to drive home in my heart over and over and over again. So let me just share it with you. That is this, God loves your children more than you do. And that means something. It means something profound. Because God's going to be raising this little boy, Joseph. You're just the daddy that he's given the responsibility to teach him what you know. But ultimately, God's raising this child, just like yours and just like mine. Come back to the story, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 21. <clears throat> she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Actually, in the, in the Greek, the word Jesus means the Lord saves. If you were to go back to Hebrew, the word Jesus is the word Yeshua. Can you say that? Yeshua. And it actually is the exact same as the Hebrew word Yehoshua. And Yehoshua, if you may or may not know this, is the word Joshua. And if you know anything about biblical history, Joshua is the one who led the Israelites out of uh, wandering around in the desert, and then he led them into the promised land. See, Moses took them out of slavery from Egypt into the desert, but Joshua, Yehoshua, is the one who led them into the promised land. So when Joseph is being told by this angel he's going to be named Jesus, this isn't any kind of like big surprise. Yeah, he's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the one who saves. He's going to be the one who leads them into the promised land. Joseph's mind has to be racing at what all of this means. So notice what he says next. For, verse 21, he will save his people, not from Roman captivity, not from oppression, not from taxes, not from evil rulers, but from what? Their sins. Now, you may not know this. See, most of us here today, if we grew up in a Christian home or a spiritual environment, we've heard the word sin, and here's what we think of. One of two things when it comes to sin. It's either the weight that we carry as people who love God. Yes, our sins are before us all the time, day and night. We know what they are. Or they are the thing that makes you feel judged by people as if you carry that big A on your chest for all the things that you've done. My scarlet letter, my sins. What sin means biblically is to miss the mark. It's that moment that tells us that we are not right with God. God is perfect. He's always good. He always makes a right decision. Our sins are what the word, the word in the Bible has used to describe those ways that we fail to obey God, either in what we call omission or commission. We literally go against the will of God or we don't obey God. He's told us do this and we say, no, I'm not going to do it. Or he says, don't do this and we say, I'm going to do it anyway. And in both those circumstances, we've created a gulf between us and God. And here's the thing. If you're a Hebrew person in Joseph's day, and Joseph is a good Hebrew man, that's why he's just going to quietly divorce uh, Mary, he knows the weight of sin. 
And the weight of sin in the Old Testament, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament laws that tell you all the things to do and not to do. And they get even as crazy as don't eat these foods and prepare your foods this way, but you had to deal with your sin. And so to deal with it, you can find this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they had to make sacrifices. They had literally had to bring in innocent lambs or, or depending on the, the sin that the sacrifice changed or perhaps doves or, or whatever it was. And they literally had to give up something. They literally had to give up a possession in order to be made right with God. And now Joseph is being told by this angel, this little baby that your wife has aside her is from God and he's going to free people from their sins. That's going to be his mission from God. Joseph his mind, you can only imagine, is racing. What could all of this mean? We know the, the, the end of the story for that, but we, Joseph didn't know anything, anything beyond these little snippets that are being dropped in on him from this angel. But then this next thing comes, look at verse uh, 22. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Now this comes from the book of Isaiah Verse 23 here, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So now Joseph gets this confirmation. See, every good Hebrew boy would have spent every Saturday at Sabbath in the local synagogue or temple worshiping God and hearing the words of the Old Testament and many times looking into them and not knowing what they mean. And this angel's beginning to give meaning to something that Joseph has heard his whole life. What does it mean in Isaiah when it says that the virgin will conceive a child? What could that possibly mean? And the angel's saying, this is what it means. Joseph, this is a big day for you. You're about to be the fulfillment of everything God has been telling us for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Congratulations, no small task, go at it. God is with you. How do I know? Because his name will mean God with us. As you well know the story, Joseph and Mary end up traveling to Bethlehem. She gives birth to a baby, and at some point thereafter that, probably a month or more later, these wise men show up from afar, and they bring presents. And so our natural perspective is to say the whole idea of giving gifts began with the wise men when they came and brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it didn't really. The whole idea of giving gifts began not even with Santa Claus or Santa Claus. It began with God. See, the first gift giver was God himself. If you were here for our Revelation series, if not, you can listen to it, or let me just summarize real quick. In the book of Revelation, we learned that before time began, God decided to create a physical world. He put stars in their place, planets around those stars, and then he got down to earth, and he began to create trees and mountains and birds and animals, and eventually he got to human beings. And as he did all these things, we are told in Revelation, before he even began that process, before any of this unfolded, Jesus was already going to be sacrificed for our sins. So as God is forming the world and he's saying, one day my creation's going to rebel against me, they're going to disobey me, they're not going to love me, and yet I'm going to show them my love by sending my one and only son as a humble baby lying in a manger to be raised to life and then to die. And this will be my sign for them that I love them. This will be my sign for them that I'm watching out for them. This will be my sign to them that I care about them. 
In fact, a guy named John actually says it like this. And see, you're, many of you are so familiar with this verse, we miss it. We miss it. John chapter 3, verse 16 says this. For God loved the world so much that he did what? Gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Let me just camp on that before we go on. See, what John is beginning to let us in on here is the story, part of what's happening in the world, so to speak. So John is telling us, go ahead and put John 3.16 back up there real quick. He's telling us that anybody who will look at this little baby when he becomes a man and he walks on this earth and ends up giving up his life, anybody who will put his trust, his hope in this man, Jesus, will not die. See, for believers in this room, those of you who are visiting today, what just happened in our service, in case you missed it, when this girl was baptized, my understanding, I just talked to her backstage, she's 28 years old, recently got married, recently moved to the community, been coming to Kingsway for a couple months. What she did today was unite with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is huge because on the day of her last breath, whatever that day comes, she won't pass from life to death, she'll pass from life to life. On the other side of her last heart beating, the other side of her last brain wave, on the other side of that last breath, whenever that day comes, however exactly it works, I've never been there, so I can't really tell you specifically. When that day comes, she'll just go from this life to the next life. Why? Because she put her hope in Jesus. And see, this is for all of us, this is huge. This is the greatest gift God ever gave. God was the first giver. And what's happened is since that day, believers have down through the generations passed on the gift of giving. God has called believers, those who believe in Jesus Christ in this room, to be the most generous people the earth has ever known. And there are some people who've gotten that. There are some who've never gotten that. There's a particular guy. uh, His name was Nicholas. And Nicholas, um, his parents died when he was young, as best as we can retell history. And he was raised by a family member who was a bishop. He was raised in the faith, and he became a leader in the church later on. In fact, he became a bishop himself. He became a strong proponent for arguing for the faith. In fact, he was present at the Council of Nicaea. Some of you who know church history know what that is. Arguing strongly for the trinity of God against the heresies of the day. But Nicholas's family, when his parents died, were pretty wealthy, and they left a good amount of money to him. Now, here's the problem. If you go and Google St. Nicholas you'll find a lot of hoopla and stories. Here's one general principle I'll give you to try to figure out what's real and what isn't. If a story shows up hundreds of years after somebody was born and you can't find a story prior to that, there's a good chance it was made up. So you'll find stories about St. Nick that came 800 years after he was born as the first time we can track it in history, and they are so weird and out there. I won't even share the details with you. You can look them up later if you're curious. You go, that's probably not real, and I think that's a safe assumption. We can't know with absolute certainty everything that is or isn't true about St. Nicholas, but there's so many versions of one story that pops up in different cultures and different countries that there's something we think is true in it. Historians will tell you they think there's an actual validity there. So here's the best I could do to retell the many versions of that story. St. Nicholas, because he was a godly man who loved God, and because his family had passed away and left him a lot of money, decided to leverage the resources that God gave him to alleviate the burdens of other people. So, literally, there was a town that he was in, and there was a guy there, and he had three young daughters. Now, this is true in other parts of the world today, but there's something that's called a dowry. 
And a dowry in some countries is what the, the dad of the daughter has to pay in order for her to be married. He has to pay a guy to marry his daughter. And you may think that sounds offensive, but what do you think is happening when your husband's dad paid $10,000 for your wedding? Okay, it's different. But in some cultures, you literally couldn't even get your daughter married unless you could put up the money. And the more money you had to pay, the better marriage or wealthier family that they could go to. And in this particular story, this guy had three daughters, and he was very, very, very poor, hardworking, but didn't have enough to meet the needs of his daughters. And he was very worried what would happen one day because girls who don't get married either end up on the streets, you can figure out what that means, or they end up in really poor, just truly poverty-stricken situations because they can't get jobs. It wasn't like today. They literally had no options. And when Mr. Nicholas heard about this, the story goes, and here's where we get many variations of the story, that he would literally go in and he dropped coins through the window into the shoes of the girls. There are various versions of the story. Some say that one night he went in and dropped three bags into their shoes right there by the windows. Some stories go that he would come along periodically and drop coins in the shoes and the dad would save them up. The versions of the story that seem to have the best history to them are that right before the eve of each girl's day where she would come of age, it could be married, Mr. Nicholas would come up with a bag of coins and drop them in. They would go into the shoes of the girls. By the second girl, the dad had figured out the pattern, and so he stayed up to try to figure out who it was, and he caught Mr. Nicholas doing this. Except when he approached him, the response from good old St. Nick was, don't give me the credit. God deserves the glory. This is a gift from him to you. Literally, St. Nick, as we call him, St. Nicholas, was literally just a good man who loved God, who understood the generosity of God and tried to live that out in the lives of other people. One variation of this story, this may explain some Christmas traditions that you have, one variation of the story is that that third girl, the, the night before uh, she would have turned or come of age, uh, she had some wet stockings by the fire and she had hung her stockings by the fire to dry them out. And since Nicholas didn't want to get caught, he decided to drop the coins down the chimney and they just miraculously landed inside the stocking. And a tradition is born. There are other variations of stories about Nicholas going along and putting oranges and other things in orphans, uh, orphans literally socks that they would hang by the fireplace. And we can't say for sure where any of those things are true or aren't true. They all have a foundation, though, and a real person. I think did we show some of those pictures. Go back to that first one if we did. A real guy. Look, I don't know if that's what he really looked like but a real guy who really existed at some point who loved God so much that he wanted to show the heart of God, a generous heart towards people in need. And that story has been duplicated over time, over and over and over again, and especially here at Kingsway. I love our church, such a generous church. We do something every year called Share the Gift, and Share the Gift is our chance to give back to a community. So we gather names of people who can't afford Christmas, and then we come alongside them and say, how can we help you? And here, this is so important. This comes out here in the story we're about to tell, but it's important when you're helping somebody to give them dignity. 
I literally heard a story uh, just in the last week about uh, somebody trying to provide Christmas to help somebody else out, and they brought the family in, and everybody sat around and watched them open the presents, and that gave the family no dignity. It's embarrassing. That's shameful. Don't do that. Figure out a way, if you're going to come alongside somebody, to give them the dignity. When St. Nicholas dropped the coins in the window, he didn't need the credit. He didn't need the glory. He didn't need a pat on the back. He just wanted God to help somebody through him. This is a great opportunity to tell you a story. I want to invite up to the stage right now. If you'll give a nice, warm Kingsway welcome to Bruce and Sandy Craigenbrink. Let's bring them up here right now. So as they're coming up here, I'll tell you this. Bruce and Sandy um, are going to tell you the story of their life group. And it's from Share the Gift 2014. And I've asked them to come up and just talk to you about what happened and what they experienced. I'm going to sit over here because if I sit next to you, you're sitting next to somebody on the couch who's like, hi, how are you? It's weird. So (laughs) give you a chance to look at them. Anyway, so would you kindly tell the church here uh, your story from 2014? Okay. um, First, though, another story on the dowry. Uh Uh-oh. Believe it or not, true story, when my brother found out that we were going to get married, he approached my husband and he said, you know, you owe me a dowry for her. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have enough money, Bruce. Let me just tell you. (laughs) All right, so let's hear the story. Um, You know, God is so amazing, and if we just open our hearts to what he talks to us about, it's amazing what he will do through us. Um, Last year, right after Thanksgiving, the Monday after Thanksgiving, another member of this church, who at that time was a special needs bus driver, um, her young man was getting on the bus, um, and his name is Nathan, and she says, oh, hi, Nathan, how was your Thanksgiving? And um, he said, you know, we didn't have any Thanksgiving because we didn't have any money. And of course, she felt really badly about that. But um, Mary, being Mary, you know, she's so well that, you know, I'm glad that you're here with me today and so forth. Anyhow, uh, the following, I think it was Thursday, so this would have been a week after Thanksgiving, um, Nathan got on the bus and she says, hi, Nathan, how are you? And he immediately just broke down and cried. And she said, what is wrong? And he said, we just found out my sister's going to die. And what the family had found out that Wednesday evening was that his sister Carrie, who was 16, uh, had been diagnosed with cancer. And it was a particularly aggressive form of cancer. And it was a very serious situation. So that day when Mary got off work, she called me and she asked me what I thought she should do. How could the church help? And I told her she needed to call Connie Seferman and see if there was a life group that could get involved with this because our life group had already committed to two other uh, people to help. And um, so she called Connie, and Connie said, I'm so sorry, but everybody, there's no room at the end, basically. (laughs) And um, so Mary called me back, and she said, Sandy, we have to do something. We have to do something. And I said, Mary, just give me a minute. Let me think about this. Let me see what my life group can do. So I immediately contacted our life group leader, and um, gave the story, and he said, sure, we'll do whatever we have to do. We're going to help this family. So um, Rachel uh, is the mother. Uh, She was coming to the food pantry, so I um, got in touch with her, and I said, I'd really like to meet you, and uh, because I wanted to confirm what I had heard, and I met Rachel and her husband, Tim, at our food pantry, and the need was indeed real, and it was great. And I was so struck, we were so struck by this family at that time, just the mom and the dad. But we went to their house. Uh, They live in a mobile home. 
There are five of them living in a, in a single uh, trailer. And, and on there, share the gift form where they fill out what, they, what their needs are, what their likes are. Uh, what they needed was to have a running toilet. They needed to have a kitchen sink that worked. Mm. They needed pillows and they needed blankets. These are people that truly needed. It wasn't the Xbox 360. It was things they really, truly needed. So when we went over there, um, Bruce made an assessment of how can we come alongside these people and help them. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a mobile home, so I, uh, I repaired the toilet yeah. and uh, I, I replaced it. And, uh, and I looked at the sink and it was uh, uh, a problem. <laughs> so I... Uh, <laughs> I've got one of those too. What are you doing later? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I fixed it and I, I, I replaced it. So, uh, and the couch was, uh, when I walked past the couch in the, in the living room, uh, it had springs out uh, the back and the... Uh, the husband, uh, Tim, he was sitting on the floor. Hmm. So uh, our life group uh, uh, gave him a new couch. Hmm. And uh, so there, uh, uh, but our, our life group isn't somebody that uh, takes credit. They give credit to God. Yeah. So. Like St. Nick. Right. So tell us, um, you've had an ongoing relationship. It wasn't just a one-time, hey, we're going to help you. You've had a continued ministry to this family. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, after we found out about the dire needs of this family and got to meet them and got to know them and spend time with them, Carrie just went right into our hearts, and we yeah. knew she was terribly ill. Um, she wanted to come and serve in a food pantry or a soup kitchen had we had one, and this is prior to her starting her chemo. But after she started her chemo in December of last year, um, it was a really bad experience for her. Uh, the chemo, she had one thing after another that she reacted to, and she spent almost the entire month of December in Riley Hospital. And uh, it appeared that she was not going to make it through this situation. And um, she did get to come home on, on Christmas Eve. She went back to the hospital the day after Christmas. Many times we'd go visit her, and we, we had to wear the masks, and we stayed away from her. But we would go to the hospital to be with this family. The mother was at the hospital, Rachel, with Carrie for 16 hours a day, but she had two other children to take care of and her husband. Hmm. So she'd be at the hospital during the day. At night, she'd be with the kid, the other two kids, helping them with homework, fixing food, doing the things that moms do. And the getting to know this family and helping them, and it wasn't just our life group. When Bruce and I go to Florida every year, and last year we were really convicted about what were we going to do with this family who needed for us not to just leave them at this point. And another life group, a second life group, stepped in, and they actually took our place while we were in Florida. So life groups are an amazing thing, and, and, and being able to share the gift isn't about giving them a gift on Christmas Day and presents and food. It's about sharing the gift that God gave to us so that we could give it back, so we can be his hands and feet, so that we can show people the, the love that he has for them through us so they don't feel that they have just been left and that it's awful. And this family is an amazing, loving, giving, grace-filled family. Yeah. 
And I, I love this story because we're telling a story about Kingsway, but really nobody wants the glory. You know, we're trying not to name names. You guys were up here, you know, we tried to do this dark screen and muffled voice. I'm just kidding. But um, we really wanted it to be a God story, a Kingsway story. So they've come to visit Kingsway a few times. Where are they now? Well, um, you know, Rachel has a wonderful name. I'm sure you'll That's agree. That's right. I'm biased. Uh, her father actually has some biblical background. I am mm. not completely sure. She's, she's reticent about sharing a whole lot about mm. her family because it's not a really close family. But um, we brought them to Kingsway, and I just have to thank everyone in this room because we asked them and asked them and asked them to come, and they hesitated to come. Yeah. And we finally convinced them to come, and, and after... They were here, and they sat right down front, and when the service was over, Matt came down and greeted them. Other people in the congregation said hello to them without knowing this story. And um, we found out afterwards, Rachel said, you know, we were just so afraid to come because we were afraid people would judge us because we look different, because of our clothes, because we don't have any money, because we don't have anything. So they saw the love of Christ through all of you who welcomed them through our life group and the other life groups that helped them, yeah. through Matt who acknowledged them. Um, it's, it's just something that God allowed us yeah to do. This really wasn't us. It sounds like we did things, and we did, but he just put it on our heart, and we just feel so blessed that he allowed us to see someone different than us that really is no different than we are. That's where the point of dignity really comes out in this, by the way, is we're kind of driving home this point about what God has called us to be. How do we love the world without stealing dignity from them? Because that's huge, because the world does that already takes it away so i love the way thank you to the church who came down and greeted them made them feel woke up said i don't care what you look like or what you dress or what your home is like hey you're welcome here so tell tell the church two questions uh, first one what is the big thing god taught you in all of this what was the big takeaway to not look at people and what they're wearing or what they drive or how they look but who are they where is their heart what is their need? And the easy thing to do is to love the people and share with people who are just like you. Yeah. The hard thing to do is to reach out to someone who's not like you and to let them become part of your family when they're really not anyone that you would have ever dreamed yeah. that God would put in your, in your life, much less in your family. Yeah. And what would you say, uh, and Bruce, maybe I'll ask you, if you were to give one piece of advice to Kingsway people from your story, what would it be? Well, I think that uh, all the people that uh, are in, in the life groups and in the church uh, are to give, uh, not only at Christmas time, but also uh, throughout the year. Yeah. And not just gifts, but time. Yeah. And... Uh, that's important to the, uh, the people because the dignity of the people and uh, the gifts are, are, are momentary, yeah. but the, uh, the time is something that uh, they cherish. Yeah, and you think about because Jesus' name will be Emmanuel, which is what? Not God gave a gift. God among us. God with us. Oh, you guys give us a nice thank you to the Craig Briggs for coming up here. Thanks, guys. I am. Um, so, so what's our takeaway from all of this? Well, first of all, John three seventeen. John three seventeen. I love this. It says this. 
God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. This is how Jesus can go around and give dignity to people who've had their dignity stolen from them by the world. He can meet women at a well who are caught in adultery and multiple marriages and say to them, hey, let's just deal with the reality of your situation. God loves you. Now let's figure out where to go from here. Dignity is a very, very, very hard thing once it's stolen to get back, but the church should be the place where we're able to give it back to someone. And then he says he didn't come to judge them. He came to save the world through himself. So that leads us to this. So what do we do with all of this? Well, two things. Number one, if you're visiting with us today or if you've been visiting with us, maybe like the young lady today who got baptized, maybe today is your day. Maybe you're realizing that your sins have piled high, your uh, own life issues of brokenness have added up, and you are far from God. And you carry the weight of that this Christmas. As you hear this story about a God who loves you enough to send his son, and you're trying to compensate with gifts and being good enough and looking good and decorations and having it all together, but deep in your heart you know there's a disconnect. I want to invite you to just consider that God's story is not done in your life, and you need a Savior But for those of you who have given your lives to Jesus, you know God, you love God, you love Jesus, I want to challenge you with these words, also from John, also chapter 3 of a different book, verse 16, ironically enough. He says this at 1 John 3, 16, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. By the way, he's talking about in the faith, he's not talking about your literal family. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love others. Let us show the truth by our what? Actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so we will be confident confident when we stand before God. Let me just add to that last verse. I think that's a fascinating statement from John. Apparently in this life, there's enough things to not give us confidence. And what John is saying is, look, you don't ever have to wonder where you stand with God. Your actions will show where your heart is. The fruit of your life will display your heart. So there's a hard question in here for those of us who call ourselves believers. Does your life display the fruit of God? And in this context, John is saying, does it display generosity? If you have the ability to meet somebody else's need, but you don't, there might be something going on in your heart, something you need to wrestle with with God. When you take a look at your neighbor's, the family members that nobody is welcoming in, perhaps somebody you know who's been uh, off into a retirement home or has a great medical need, and you know they're isolated at Christmas. Maybe it's somebody that your students, your kids, know at school with them. I don't know who it is, but I want to challenge you believers in this room. You've got a couple weeks left between Christmas to just open your eyes, open your heart, open your wallets, open your home, maybe even do what my dad did. One time when I was a kid, and I don't even know the story because I was too young to understand, we were in the parking lot. I think we were at like Sears or Kmart. There really wasn't Walmart that was popular then. That's how old I am. And um, my dad literally opened up the trunk, and there was a family he ran into in the parking lot. He didn't know from anybody, but they had needs, and he literally emptied our trunk and gave them our Christmas presents. And I wasn't happy about that as a kid. I know that. I remember that. 
But my dad was teaching me something that was bigger, more important. The Spirit of God lives in Jesus, lives in men like Santa Claus, lives in families like the Craig and Brinks and these other life groups, and lives in us who believe. Does your life show that? What we want to do right now is turn our hearts toward God in prayer. We just want to ask God to fill us up with the Spirit, to convict us of our own greed and selfishness, and to move in us in a way that says, let's share life with a world who needs it. And here's how I want to pray. I want to pray for God to break our hold on things in this world, and I want to pray that God would literally bring you the name of somebody that you can bless at Christmas with the love of Jesus. And the name that comes to your mind while I'm praying, I want you to ask Act on it. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray right now, would you create in us a heart like yours? God, for those of us who are full of your spirit, would your spirit literally stir in us? Lord, break our hold. We have this hold on comfort, God, that Christmas is going to be the gathering with me and my family and my stuff and my toys and the things that I'm planning to do. And God, would you break our hold on these sacred moments and help us to uh, release them to your care. And now, God, I pray very specifically for every believer in this room, Lord, would you bring to our minds, to our hearts, the name, a name of a literal family, a person that needs the love of Jesus. They need a blanket or a meal or a toilet and sink. They need the presence, literally us with them, there's somebody, God, and you're bringing them to mind right now, right now. But, God, then you're stirring in us a desire to do something about it so that we can be just like you and your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.